All right, welcome to another T-Rex talk. Today we're going to be talking about the myths of gun control. I think we're talking about five myths of gun control. And because these are really easily debunked things that you probably already know the answers to, we're also going to be talking about some of the underlying um, reasons that people think this way and want to believe these particular myths. Uh, now, the reason that I'm talking about these myths is because uh, gun control is in the news again. It's gone from being a pretty quiet complaint of the really hard left, uh, complaining that Joe Biden hadn't done anything to take guns away from people, to something that is now constantly in the news, all the headlines, five alarm fire, demanding instant action, even though all the facts haven't come out. And uh, everybody who wants attention over this issue is grabbing it. So, um, Beta O'Rourke, all kinds of crazy stunts. Uh, and once again, saying that he is indeed coming for your AR-15, your AK-47. When when he wasn't running for office, he actually kind of backtracked on that. But now he's flip-flopped yet again, and he's all for weapon confiscation. Uh, Joe Biden took some prime time uh, television space to talk to us about things that he doesn't really fully understand. Justin Trudeau took this opportunity to declare a total ban on the purchase, sale, and transfer of handguns throughout Canada, and also implemented some more shenanigans with the uh, AR-15, well, actually, I forget exactly the category, but assault rifles, uh, as defined in the Canadian way. Those confiscations and buybacks are now starting where they were previously only banned from sale, uh, purchase, and transfer before. So, obviously, there's a lot of attention on guns and gun control right now, but the reason is because uh, the media has, has really decided to focus on just a couple of shootings. Um, they're very selective in the things that they want to cover and the times that they want to cover them. So the main ones are obviously the Buffalo, New York shooting and the Uvalde, Texas shooting. Now, there's a bunch of mass shootings that are not getting covered. For example, there was a guy who killed four people in an Oklahoma hospital. Um, he's not getting talked about because it turned out he wasn't actually a white supremacist. Um, there's also a very similar attack in California. Uh, but a guy used a knife in that instance instead of a gun, so it's not getting talked about. And then there was a potential mass shooting in West Virginia. A guy with a rifle started shooting into a crowd, obviously intending on murdering a large mass of people, but he was stopped by a woman who had her handgun on her uh, and her concealed carry license. So that's all legal and above board, heroic, successful, uh, and not going to get talked about. Uh, but an interesting thing has happened just in the last little while. Generally, what happens is the media completely ignores the really high numbers of shootings that are happening in places like Baltimore, Chicago, Philadelphia. But as soon as they hit a certain level, and as soon as there's a couple of other mass shootings that are so horrific, so gruesome that they stand alone, they kind of tack just the overall Philadelphia body count on top of the school shooting. Uh, and then they don't mention that those Philadelphia shootings are almost entirely gang-related. So let's, let's talk about the myths now. The first myth that comes out uh, when there is a really horrific shooting like this is that America is the only place where this happens. America is the only place where you see gun violence of this type or of this scale, uh, and that just simply isn't true. In fact, in 2015, there were a whole bunch of mass shootings in Paris, um, and the one in November killed 130 people. 
Uh, every few years, there is a pretty significant mass shooting in European countries that have really significant gun laws. Uh, in 2008, the Mumbai, India uh, shooting, that was pretty significant. I think there were also a few bombs that contributed uh, to the fatalities, but it was the same people with the same motivations, and 175 people were killed in that. And this happens in places like Africa all the time. Nigeria is a particularly bad example. In fact, yesterday, uh, Sunday, there was a pretty significant attack on a Catholic church. Uh, it's so recent that we're not actually sure what the body count is. Estimates are somewhere between 30 and 50 people who are dead in that particular instance. And uh, Nigeria has schools get attacked on a pretty regular basis. They aren't always shootings. Oftentimes, uh, the student body is kidnapped, and uh, hundreds and hundreds of students have been lost for years and years at a time. Uh, and then China, China does actually have really effective gun control. There's very few school shootings or any kind of shootings, but there are school stabbings. Um, these are actually shockingly common. And of course, it's worth pointing out that China has a whole lot of other side effects of their really, really effective gun control. Uh, June 4th was the 33rd anniversary of Tiananmen Square. And I was just talking to my brother Noah about the fact that one of the creepiest things about Tiananmen Square is not uh, so much the fact that the Chinese government ran tanks over their own people. It's the fact that we actually have no idea how many people were killed. We know that it is in the hundreds, the many hundreds, probably in the thousands. But the information control exerted by the government means that they were able to keep the actual number of people murdered by their own government a mystery. Myth number two is that good guys with guns never stop mass shootings. Now, obviously, uh, I just told you already about an instance when a good woman with a gun did manage to stop a mass shooting. But there was an FBI report that came out that talked about mass shootings, active shooter situations in the year 2021. So this is just last year. And... Uh, the report is a little hard to read, but there were six civilians who managed to stop active shooters with firearms, and uh, 14 mass shooters were stopped by law enforcement, and 11 mass shooters were stopped by mass shooter himself. I think it's actually really, really impressive that civilians with guns managed to stop almost half as many active shooter situations as law enforcement because a previous study showed that about 94% of all mass shootings happen inside of gun-free zones. So that definitely puts the law-abiding gun-carrying citizen at a bit of a disadvantage. Uh, he's not even allowed to have the tools necessary at his disposal in the location where the active shooters are deciding to uh, ply their trade, so to speak. Myth number three is this idea that uh, everyone agrees that we need more restrictions, even the Republicans. And I actually read this uh, in my very own local paper in tiny, tiny Centerville. Uh, the Centerville Times published an op-ed from somebody, I believe in Nashville, who was saying, it is time for common sense gun restrictions and everybody, even all of my hardest core, farthest right, reddest Republican friends agree that we should have serious storage laws, bans on high capacity magazines and uh, red flag laws, of course. And every single person in the country, except for a few extreme, utterly out of their gourds, wackos, believes this. 
And, uh, well, this is uh, simply not true, obviously. This narrative that there's only a tiny fringe of Second Amendment absolutists, and then there's a whole bunch of normal people in the middle who, for some reason, uh, don't manage to ever get their opinions heard, is uh, something that we hear all the time about a whole bunch of different issues. But I would like to point out that in 2020... And in 2021, there's an estimated 10 million people who bought guns for the very first time those two years. The number of people who want more guns and fewer gun restrictions is growing. And these are not people who are just answering poll requests. These are people who are spending their hard-earned money to buy firearms for themselves. I think that that counts for a lot. And this kind of leads me into myth number four. Myth number four says that the gun lobby is this huge, unstoppable force. That the gun lobby is, in fact, the most powerful force in all of politics. It's, after all, the only way that you would explain why essentially all of America wants more gun control, wants more gun restrictions, wants fewer guns on the streets. It's really only that big, bad old gun lobby that somehow, through their massive power and influence, uh, are able to keep guns trickling out onto the street where technically nobody wants them or wants to pay for them. But if you actually look at the political influence that the gun lobby has, it's obviously hard to measure. But if you look at the amount of money that they spend, that's pretty easy. If you go to opensecrets.com, you can look up political lobbying and the way that they measure um, these dollars is laid out there. They divide things up by sector. You can look up individual organizations. But if you look up the gun rights organizations, and you look at the amount of money that they spent lobbying in the year 2021, the amount is $16 million, which, by the way, is a record. It's the most money that the gun rights lobby has ever spent, $16 million. Now, if you uh, want some comparison, uh, the drug manufacturers and pharmaceutical companies, uh, they spent in the same year $160 million. And again, that's just drug manufacture. If you want to see the entire health Uh, industry in general. That's equipment manufacturers and uh, bill collection agencies and various types of labor unions. You're looking at more like $690 million last year. The agribusiness, this is uh, people that make farming equipment, fertilizer, etc. Monsanto, of course, they spent $150 million lobbying to the government to, uh, you know, get their way. Uh, This one is kind of interesting. Public officials, these are civil servants or bureaucrats who already work for the government, and they spent $100 million of your tax money lobbying the legislators to give more power to the government that they already work for. Uh, That's fascinating to me. That doesn't even count people who are lobbying to expand other parts of the government, like education. Education lobbying, $85 million. Um, And I don't know that that even includes teachers' unions. Teachers' unions are probably part of the public sector labor unions, and that's uh, that's $13 million. So, So basically everybody, almost everybody, is spending way, way, way more than the gun lobby. And now myth number five. Myth number five is a really uh, obvious one. This idea that more guns equals more crime. Now, it is true that violent crime has risen lately, but only in the very last couple of years. And it's true, as I mentioned before, that uh, gun ownership has also risen in the last couple of years. But gun ownership has been rising rapidly for decades. And crime was actually trending down up until couple of years ago. I can't actually remember what's been happening for the last couple of years, 
But I bet that if we studied it very carefully, we could find a couple of explanations for rising crime and violence. Um, but um, even looking beyond that, there's a whole bunch of things that are up a lot. Non-grun crime is also up a lot. Inflation is up. Unemployment is up. The number of people who are on psychotropic drugs because of mental illness and depression, that is up. Fatherlessness is up. Um, there's a lot of stuff that is rising along with violence, and so we could point the finger at a whole bunch of different things uh, besides guns. And also, it's very important that when we talk about the rise of guns and the rise of crime, we should look at some other statistics. For example, uh, we have no idea how many guns are actually in the United States, and that's a good thing. But I would say that it's somewhere north of 800 million guns, and most of these are probably rifles. And rifles are used in somewhere between 400 and 2,000 murders every year. So that is 0.0002% of rifles get used in murder. Um, and, you know, there's there's more uh, handgun homicides that happen, somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000. The reason we don't know the exact numbers is because the FBI keeps track of firearm homicides, and they know some were definitely committed by a rifle, and they know that some were definitely committed by a handgun, and then they have a chunk in the middle where they're not actually sure what the weapon was. Uh, not surprising because the ATF makes it really complicated to figure out what a rifle and a handgun are. Maybe the FBI can talk to them. But even at the top end, those handgun murders still only reflect something like 0.0004% of handguns that are out there. So there are untold numbers of handguns and rifles out there not committing crimes at all. A far bigger factor in whether or not firearms are committing crimes is actually specific regions. We can definitely draw a line, a correlation between large numbers of gun laws in a certain area and then large numbers of gun crimes in that exact same area. And let's look at another correlation. So obviously we have had some significantly increased crime in the years 2020 and the years 2021, and there's absolutely no way to figure out why that might be. We also had massive spikes in gun sales, about 21 million new guns sold in the year 2020 and about 18 million new guns in 2021. And the surge of purchases in these two years highly indicates regions with spiking gun crime. And the gun sales come after the crimes. For example, Washington, D.C. residents bought 40% more guns in the year 2021 than they did in the year 2020. So while it is not statistically accurate to say that more guns always equals more crime, it does appear that more crime does equal more guns. I think I want to talk about some of the presuppositions and worldview that have to undergird some of these myths. Because if you are going to believe that America is the only place where shootings happen, if, if America is that kind of exceptional then you have to believe that it is the sheer profusion of guns in America that allow that to happen. You have to ignore the fact that shootings happen in other places. You have to ignore the fact that there are actually a lot of guns in other places. And you have to just focus on the fact that America has millions upon millions of guns and draw some kind of correlation that way. The sheer number of guns in the Midwest of America somehow focuses its gunness onto Chicago, a place that actually doesn't have that many guns per capita, and somehow all of those guns throughout the nice Midwestern peoples make homicidal thoughts in the inner city happen. And to believe that a good guy with a gun can never actually stop a crime or that it is such an insane rarity that it's not worth even contemplating, you have to believe that 
guns are just a hobby, that all of these Second Amendment people are merely hanging on to an incredibly dangerous hobby that hurts other people for no reason other than their own selfishness. Um, I want to point out a cartoon, a political cartoon, uh, that was drawn by David Horsley. Um, he is at the Seattle Times, I believe. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, so um, I guess it's easier to win a Pulitzer Prize than I thought. Uh, but he had an interesting cartoon from a while back, and the picture is this, and it contains a whole bunch of these uh, different myths. There is a guy with an NRA hat. It's kind of like a priest's headdress. And the caption on this cartoon is, The Altar of America's True Religion. And there's this giant altar, and on top of it is the picture of the worst AR-15 I've ever seen anyone draw. Even uh, my tiny children can draw an AR-15 better than David Horsley. Or, you know, not better, but more accurately. And the priest wearing the NRA headdress is saying, Bring forth the students and cops and innocent bystanders to be sacrificed. And around this NRA priest are acolytes wearing hunter orange with scoped rifles. So even in this ridiculously over-the-top cartoon, David Horsley still sees advocates of private gun ownership as mere hobbyists. They want to own their guns for hunting. Their selfishness is causing the blood of millions to be spilt simply so they can wear their orange jackets, go out and take pot shots at deer. That is the presupposition behind this particular cartoon. It actually reminded me of something that I heard earlier this year. There were a lot of protesters uh, in Washington, D.C., gathering around some private homes, and they had signs, and uh, the women were chanting, Supreme Court justices must die so that our ability to murder babies won't be lost. Um, that, that's what a lot of women actually sound like in 2021. Uh, I recognize the diversity there. But what David Horsley and a lot of the critics of the firearms community, not to mention the firearms industry, fail to realize is that the Second Amendment is not for hunting and gun rights are not a hobby. Gun control advocates are correct when they point out that firearms are tools designed for killing. And the most effective firearms for personal defense, for home defense, for community defense, for public defense, are going to be devices that are designed for killing efficiently and effectively. And the reason that a lot of people think that pointing out that firearms are deadly weapons um, is actually some kind of intellectual takedown, some kind of argumentative checkmate, is because they believe another weird presupposition that the world is too civilized and too enlightened to need uh, the barbarism of the past, the barbarism of personal defense, the barbarism of having to fight to protect your own life. Which is kind of weird, because on the one hand, uh, this group of people sort of points out these bitter clingers who are this weird throwback to brutal times that will never reappear because of how great civilization is now. But at the same time, uh, the United States is a blood-soaked battleground which is ruled by an authoritarian gun lobby and a bunch of systematically racist cops, and so we should trust them to protect us. And now I want to stop with the jokes, because this is a really, really important point here. This idea that the world is so enlightened and evolved that you will never actually need tools to defend your own life from evil, or the idea that it is the civil government's responsibility and ability to protect you is going to lead you to a very, very dark place. And I'm not just talking about the physical danger that that brings. I'm talking about an ideological one. The right to life is the most fundamental of all human rights. 
It does not come from the government, uh, and the government doesn't grant you the right to protect your life. The Second Amendment in the United States merely recognizes um, and acknowledges a pre-existing natural right, and then it places limits on the federal government accordingly. So this question about whether or not you can own the best tools to defend your own life is kind of the ultimate test of whether a nation or a culture really believes in inalienable rights at all. A nation can pay lip service to your rights all day long. Yes, you have the right to property, but you have to pay your taxes. Yes, you have a right to free speech, but certain ideas are verboten. Uh, yes, you have the right to a free trial, but the Patriot Act says that you personally might not get one. So gun ownership is like the ultimate test. It's the ultimate test of the rights of the individual and the limits of government. If your government will not let you own guns, then your government does not believe that it has limits. And that means that it believes that you don't actually have rights. And if that is the case, then random and rare school shootings, tragic as they are, um, will be the least of your worries. And in fact, I would say that the best case for private gun ownership is the Uvalde, Texas shooting. Um, at this point, it is becoming clear that the horrific murder of 19 children and two adults at the Robb Elementary School was a tragedy that was extended by inaction and actions of the Uvalde Police Department. Now, I've hesitated to say this previously because um, their story that it was impossible for them to get to the shooter any faster is plausible. Schools today are built like prisons. They're usually built by the exact same contractors who build prisons for the exact same state, uh, usually to the exact same specifications with the exact same materials. It's oftentimes hard to tell the difference. And it would be very hard to get into a school that is as hardened as a lot of our schools are. But it's not just that they waited outside the school for over an hour. It's the fact that they forcibly prevented distraught parents from entering the school to save their children. And it's now been several days uh, since the incident, and really no new details have come out. And that doesn't look good. It doesn't really bode well. There's no pictures of the impenetrable door. There's no diagrams in the newspapers showing the unassailable floor plan. Uh, at this point, it is still not clear how or when the Border Patrol agents that took command of the situation actually went in to kill the shooter. It's not clear whether they took command through the proper incident command system or whether they simply overruled the police that were there and went in on their own. This is days later, and it's still very hard to figure out what is going on, um, partly because the police chief and the city council and the school board are all acting really strange. School board has just voted to not discipline the police chief in any way. The police chief has just been voted on to the city council and sworn in, and there's not a whole lot of communication coming out, and allegedly they're not even cooperating with the Texas state investigation that is going on. This smells pretty bad. So if folks on the left are looking for an event, an incident that would make a really solid case that individuals should give up more of their protective capability and transfer it to government agents, the Uvalde shooting is not it. And when the media does this bait-and-switch thing where they, they take the body count from Pittsburgh and then they add to it sort of the glowing white supremacy from the Buffalo shooting and then they, then they add the kids' pictures from Texas and they mix the whole thing together into a gun violence epidemic, it's clear that they are really just trying to inflame the voters uh, right before the midterms, which... By the way, it may be the Democrats' last hope, uh, because Joe Biden's rocking economy is not exactly sparking joy. Uh, the potential of overturning Roe v. Wade certainly drove some people bonkers, but it didn't really spark enough riots. Um, so this thing is the thing that might be able to counter the red wave. But I don't really care so much about 
the elections. That's pretty short-term stuff. And I think the people who actually read about these events, and they think about what actually happened in Uvalde, the little information that we have, they will not want more gun control. They will want more guns. If they are concerned about gun violence, they will notice that they cannot rely on law enforcement to help them or their children. They are going to want to do more to protect their families which means they are going to want to buy a gun. The NRA will not convince them to do it. Ironically, it is the anti-gunners who will. How many are these people? I don't have any idea, but I do predict that we will have record gun sales in the year 2022, and it's not going to be because people are afraid of impending gun control as much as they are afraid of gun violence that they will be on their own to protect themselves from. The tremendous amount of attention that the media and our politicians are giving to gun violence right now will absolutely affect the vote in the midterms. But it's going to sway people both ways. I think a lot of parents are going to stop sending their children to these government schools that are built like prisons, and I think they're going to stop depending on government agents for their protection. They're going to want something else. And as you have conversations with folks who are kind of more in the middle, I think it is really important that you have some actual facts to address some of these myths, but more importantly, that you talk about the fundamental issues uh, underneath, that you be able to recognize and address some of the presuppositions, some of the worldview issues that affect the way that people think about guns. Should the state have a monopoly on violence, or is its jurisdiction limited by the rights of the individual. You can see how hobbies doesn't really come into it.